0: Hello, I'm Lawrence Woodruff, and I have broken a personal record, having now experienced three consecutive snow days.
1: And I'm Michael Ralph, and I am an
0: officer for the Kansas Association of Biology Teachers. Professional development should not be restricted to
1: the workday. This is our personal yet professional dialogue. So grab a seat, grab a glass, and join us. We will discuss that we might improve.
0: Today, we are drinking Ballast Point Brewing Company, Victory at Sea, Imperial Coffee and Vanilla Porter.
1: It is, it is dark. The head in particular is there, but is also dark. I, uh, We've got a theme going on the show. I like porters, I like dark beers, I like Imperials. This is all of
0: those. It's going to be great. And I am over-caffeinated today, so now we're having a beer with coffee also,
1: so there's a sub-theme for me as well. <laughs> a coffee flavor, beer with coffee. Mm-hmm. How about that? Yeah. So this month, we're coming back around, and we're going to have some more technology discussions. And as I was trying to figure out what ongoing conversations were being had in the education space regarding technology, I came across a Medium article by... Fred Davis, and I actually came across it because there was a quote I wanted to use, and his article had that quote as part of his title, and so that was how I came across it. Yeah, this piece uh, appealed to me, actually, uh, uh, because I love this
0: technological doom speaker stuff, and uh, it was a very cautionary uh, in that um, we are poorly equipped to be consciously aware of, of how tools shape us. And so it was cautionary, as our development of new technologies becomes more rapid than
1: how those technologies are changing us becomes less obvious. And so this segment is actually an attempt to respond to some listener critique that we got several episodes ago from Brad Williamson when he pushed us to seek more data and more research on some of the newer forms of technology and data that can be collected in the classroom. And so we have the literature to go that direction. So that's what's happening. So our first segment is considering animated pedagogical agents as aids in multimedia learning effects on eye fixations during learning and learning outcomes. And this paper comes from Wang and Lee with Mayer and Liu. Uh, this research is coming in partnership with a couple of universities in China and California. And they are investigating what do we know about on-screen
0: online lessons and what are... Th- How can we improve the efficacy of those lessons? That's what they're exploring.
1: And so this is relevant to folks who are looking to flip their classroom or looking to serve online communities. Educational videos need to be considering this. We really need to understand the social implications of putting some of these learning opportunities online in response to social agency theory and the Vygotsky stuff that we've known for a while. So what's that all look like once we go to this online digital space? So this study decided to look at some of what can we do to be more responsive to what we know about how people learn in a social context. So there are a couple of things that uh, are involved
0: between a learner and a teacher in a classroom uh, that have been established for a long time. There's ideas about social learning theory and social agency theory, uh, which uh, posits that social cues promote a relationship between the, the learner and the instructor. And so when you don't have a... Uh, a personal instructor in the room, what is lost or how does that affect the online learning experience. Uh, additionally, there is a motivation during communication that is triggered by a social presence. The cooperation principle of human-human interactions is that there's an implicit partnership between the speaker who is attempting to clarify the communication of an idea and a listener who is attempting to um, focus to receive that information. How is that affected uh, when you remove uh, the teacher from the equation and you have an online interface? They also uh, considered... Um, cognitive load. Uh, If you have distractors in an environment that are not directly related to the instruction, that can uh, have consequential learning costs. And
1: all of these things were considered in their uh, experimental design. And so some of that is fairly intuitive. If you imagine that you're going to be considering a video model of photosynthesis, or if you're going to be looking at a digital rendering of math processes they are trying to represent what's happening in a physical space and I just put a video up and sit down at my desk students are going to have more trouble understanding what they're seeing and in particular prioritizing the value of what's on the screen than if I stand up and say okay this is happening now check out over here look at this membrane where these things are moving around this is important and you should consider it and then later on in the video check out over here here's another organelle that has this interaction or here these manipulators are merging and that's a really Yeah foundational concept of this idea. So it is intuitive that if we give some guidance or some prompting to students while they're consuming some sort of media, that improves their access to that media. That's not revolutionary. The question is, how do we reproduce that without me physically standing in the classroom doing the pointing? So what did they do?
0: They actually conducted a series of several experiments, which I'm going to condense down uh, for the purposes of ease of discussion of the main ideas. They presented to a bunch of students, these are all uh, college undergraduates a lesson on neurotransmitters. This is a pretty complex biology concept so uh, few of the individuals had backgrounds to ready themselves for this concept and uh, they presented the lesson online in four different ways one of them was a straight presentation of the material with a, a narration over, over it The second was the same experience with a frozen cartoon teacher, which they called a pedagogical agent, to the side of the
1: material. Which is literally like a cartoon of a teacher standing next to what appears to be a projector. So a literal representation of a teacher. (laughs) The third was the same, except that
0: that teacher was animated to point to different sections of the presentation as they were being discussed. And finally, another presentation that did not have a cartoon teacher, but used highlighting during the presentation to draw the student's attention to the same ideas uh, that the teacher pointed to in the prior experience.
1: So which was the lowest performing? Which group obtained the lowest degree of competency in their experience? The presentation that had no cartoon teacher
0: and no highlighting uh, resulted in the least gains in the the students.
1: What I thought was interesting was the middle groups because at play is both a direction of attention because the one without the teacher animated portion did have an improvement in gains but it was not they didn't recover all of the improvement that was present in the animated teacher, which goes to tell us that there is some social interaction and social cueing happening from even just a simple cartoon teacher. So we've got social dynamics at play in addition to processing and attention direction.
0: Overall, the results were a animated gesturing cartoon teacher uh, is the best way to direct the attention of the learner, uh, even in these online spaces, even more so than simply highlighting the important material as it's being discussed. An additional component that they researched during this was uh, eye tracking. They were um, deciding how engaged an individual was by using the their eye motions as a proxy for engagement are they looking at the critical components of this lesson on this screen are they distracted are they not involved and by tracking those eye motions they found that yes signaling does uh, address and redirect some of the attention of the individual but it doesn't uh, engage them uh, for as long as periods of time as the animated teacher engaged them. So, even
1: just tracking eye motions, the cartoon teacher was still the most effective. Mm-hmm. So what was interesting, I actually had occasion to bump into Brad Williamson uh, just in passing because I sent him this paper and said, "Haha, we have found something that I think might address some of your concerns. Send me more concerns. And he was like, I will. Uh, he mentioned that, yes, while this is this addresses some of those questions, the issue is I am I'm not a professional animator, so I can't create animated teacher cartoons for every one of my online videos. So what's actually actionable about this for a classroom teacher who's got a hundred other things to do in a day? I think that critique is, um,
0: is really, really valid. Uh, and I was experiencing that myself. Uh, I have some other concerns with how this was, uh, Executed the the tests that they did occurred immediately after the lesson was given, which means ultimately they were they were still assessing what was in the working memory of the individual and not necessarily what their brain was going to retain or take away over long term. So this is there's kind of a little bit of um uh, a
1: narrow scope of how these uh, brains were affected at the time. But I mean, quality of loading working memories. I mean. I struggle to come up with a narrative where we're going to flip effect. Like, I I have directed my attention to appropriately prioritized information but retain less of it because of a social interaction. I would be very surprised by that. So, yes, that's a valid critique from an experimental design standpoint, but I don't think... I wouldn't anticipate that that data would change our interpretation. Fair enough. I'm starting with my softer
0: critiques anyway. All right, uh,
1: yeah. Now, I'm feeling loose. I'm getting, <laughs> getting warm. Okay, so
0: then uh, as, as Brad Williamson suggested, so what? Animated teachers are better than not animated teachers. What does that have to do with me in the classroom? And I agree with that perspective. When I was reading this, I actually, I was actually inspired and drew some connections with an entirely, apparently separate, although I drew connections between them, research that was done in the 1950s And uh, for those of you that have um, uh, studied behavioral science, behavioral psychology, you may remember or know about the uh, Harlow monkey experiments. This is where they had a monkey in a cage and... this baby they had multiple baby monkeys and some were one was raised by a wire cloth mother with a bottle and another was made with a cloth monkey uh mother with a bottle and they gave these these monkeys um some stress experiences and watched their response and the monkeys with the wire frame mother did very poorly in coping with that stress response um they showed distress behaviors for much longer before being able to equilibrate. And they did that with, and they tried to do that without in, Interfacing with the cloth, with I'm sorry, with the wireframe monkey, whereas those with the cloth monkey ran to the cloth monkey and gripped and became soothed uh, and in a nuzzled. much, yeah. yeah, in a much shorter amount of time after the stress response. And to me, this is kind of what I'm looking at when I see this. Um, we have, you can do a lesson with a wireframe monkey with no social cueing at all, and you'll get some response. Then you can give a lesson with a uh, a cloth monkey. This would be an animated teacher that can give some of those uh, cues, uh, and you can get a better consequence. But ultimately, and here's the catchphrase, people, I'm the real monkey. Me in my classroom, I am the real monkey, and so... I need to leverage my humanity, my presence with my students uh, to engage them in my lessons. That's what I can do. And that is true whether I am presenting online or whether I am in the classroom. My body is
1: leverage and I need to use it to improve my interfaces with my students. Well, that's valuable in your classroom, but I can't fit 1.2 million viewers into your classroom. So I'd be genuinely curious to know whether a videotape of a PowerPoint presentation from an actual live teacher produces different gains than an animated presentation with an animated teacher. Because there's an entire book, The Man Who Lied to His Laptop, that showed us that humans do respond similar to that monkey with the, the soothing behaviors even with a non-authentic mother figure. So scalability matters here. Like you can serve 30 students really well, but there are a lot of folks who are working in online spaces, you included, for which there is not a classroom equivalent. Uh, that is key.
0: The monkey who had access to that cloth mother did better than the monkey without it. And, uh, When I first read this article, I was like, this is kind of a waste of time, because I should be improving my practice. Uh, We must change the way we talk and gesture and look at students to become better teachers. We must micromanage our own behaviors and how we emote, uh, and... Uh, being comfortable with your presence in the classroom without critically looking at how your micro behaviors affect your students I think is disrespectful to our profession so for me I was really focused on okay we understand that social cues influence students what are my social cues and I better make them conscious because if I'm just letting unconscious cues direct my classroom I'm not really doing my job so that's how I was approaching it but then I was influenced I was changed I was inspired uh, by uh, a TED Talk by uh, Daphne Collar of Stanford University who um, uh, talked about this outreach program where they were able to uh, reach millions of students and give millions of people who would not have access to these collegiate classes access to these collegiate classes. And that reminds me, the cloth monkey is better than no monkey. And so because... Education is not distributed equally around the world, and we do not all have the same opportunities. Investing in improving that cloth monkey, improving accessibility to quality online education is important even while I concentrate on my own uh, classroom presence. Both of those things are important ways
1: to improve education. I can do all of those high quality classroom behaviors, but there is a place where I think flipping some material is valuable. And there are a number of people who do flip some material. So if I make I, – I have videos. You have videos. I do. So if I'm making a video, even something as simple as doing a picture-in-picture of me talking might make me uncomfortable. But it looks like it makes my students more comfortable. If I'm being in a video and all I do is – you should check out over there. And then I weather person it and point, that's gonna influence how much they get out of my video than if I had no PMP versus if I had no picture in picture and didn't gesture. So even if I can't necessarily go to Shangri La every time I make a video, understanding that providing as many social cues as I can that they would get in my classroom when I generate digital materials, we can do an approximation that is both viable with the resources we can devote to each of those materials and is better than no white, just the wireframe monkey? Uh, Absolutely. I thought about that myself. I do
0: produce um, uh, additional tutorial materials in my class uh that they can access online uh some short tutorial videos it is not a key component of my course i got plenty of students who never use it but it's a support material for students who want additional uh, access to information when i'm not present or they're away from me and i was thinking that my behaviors as i make these videos are going to change in light of this research Um, right now i do have my face right there in one of the corners but i might move my face around a little more often and i might pretend to point uh just within my little face box to to things that might be important. That's gonna be a new skill I'm gonna have to develop (laughs) is that pointing in a virtual space because clearly, uh, and this is, you know, of course this is true. I have known this in my classroom about my physical presence. Uh, Why wouldn't I also leverage that with a digital, digital interface? Well, this paper has told me I must influence that in a digital interface if I'm going to get the most out of these tutorial videos that I'm trying to create.
1: I must. We are social creatures, and we respond to social cues. So, providing social cues in spaces where previously there would be none is better than not doing that. Yeah. So... Once you say it in a general form like that, that has all sorts of applications absolutely So if I'm doing if I'm doing digital materials and can link them back in the classroom where I can provide social queuing and social reinforcement validation, then that's valuable and it's funny you mentioned TED Talks because there's another one that provides the research to support that idea three fears about screen time for kids and that's something that brings me deep disequilibrium because screen time has a cost at the beginning but she provided some compelling research that shows that if you reinforce that screen time with social validation and interaction reinforcement afterwards you get higher gains than just the social interaction or just the screen time it is better than either one by itself and that's compelling to me so finding ways to provide social reinforcement matters to us and our kids that is we must must do that in all contexts, but digital contexts in particular. This reinforces and not weakens the
0: critical role of teachers in classroom and in distance learning. The distance learning, the digital learning improves when you mimic teacher behaviors. Hmm. So uh, let's not forget that we are we are we are trying to give something that is not universally available uh, in the in the Diane Collar TED talk. The ideal experience was still a one to one tutor person ratio. And we are we are we are trying to improve the online experience because we don't have a society where we're ever going to pay for a one to one student personal teacher ratio. Now, I think that we I think that as a society, at lots of societies, we could do better to improve teacher ratio, and I think that it is possible to improve it. But even I accept that that one to one ratio is not achievable. So rem- we have to remember that this is not de-emphasizing the role of teachers. This is actually. Uh, supporting the role of teachers and that we need to continue to look at those positive interactions interpersonal in a classroom so that we can try to recreate them as best we can within
1: our limitations to those that don't have that available. So what's interesting, I kind of had my mind microblown even as you're making those comments just now because this actually informs some of the frustrating experiences that I and some of my colleagues have had in the blending lear- the blended learning spaces and the online-only coursework where it's so focused on discussion board posting and reflection writing. If all I'm ever doing is writing text, I am working with a wireframe monkey. That's, yeah. So of course that's not resonating with students. They're not investing critically or Uh, cognitively and so their returns are greatly diminished because we are depriving them of all those social cues so video responses are superior to text responses and video interactions are superior to just simple video responses. Reproducing social interactions is valuable and explains some of the frustrations that we're having in the digital space I just can't complete this without getting some of my critique, though
0: though the Daphne Collar TED Talk just changed my life. Uh, <laughs> I can't. I can't get away without giving some critiques of that particular work. Um, and so, one of the things uh, about what she was doing is that she was working with college age uh, mostly non-traditional students, yeah. and these yeah. were. All self-motivated adults that were intrinsic they were not compelled to be there by any external force uh, and they wanted to engage uh, uh, with the lessons at the distance that they were at through the media that they could Uh, which means uh Her, you know, we cannot accept that, oh, this is the successful model. Let's implement this in the classroom because it worked for them. I don't think that that is an appropriate panacea. And additionally, something that irked me is that when she said she compared the online experiences with her own. Her own uh, her own classes, and she said these things. She said, "When I ask a question in class, eighty percent of the students are scribbling the last thing I said. Fifteen percent are zoned out on Facebook. We've got blurters that answer the question uh, before others uh, b- b- before others hear it, and then the lecture moves on before most of the students know a question has been asked." She was attempting to draw contrast between the classroom experience and the online experience, but I would like to say that that is not a problem with a classroom environment. That is a problem with practice. That is a problem with the agency of the teacher. Uh, and I I loved your TED Talk, but... you said straw man-ish. Yeah, that, that argument is not valid. We need to improve our own practice in the classroom because... Uh, you've. We've already said that our interfacing matters. If they're still writing, don't speak. If th- – period. Like, d- you're doing it wrong. And I hope you hear this. If what you – if they have to write things down, then you have to give them the space and time to write them down. If or they- the opposite is also true. If you're speaking, they shouldn't be writing, which Absolutely. is also true. Um. Um, 15% are zoned out on Facebook. I know that in a college environment, it's far less uh, acceptable to, um, to, to mandate uh, student behaviors uh, as with their personal devices. That's their, that's their devices in
1: a per- per- no, personal space. No, but no. Great. Yeah. No. Tell me I'm wrong, no, professor. I want to hear it. when I was a college freshman, I watched a psych, an introductory psychology professor forbid interaction with any digital device during any of his lectures and he was successful and he kicked you out if you were on a digital device. He meant it and he succeeded and I think that you'd be surprised we're social creatures. So if you ask somebody to not be on a computer, college students will comply. So if you come at it from an adversarial standpoint, of course they can resist you. But if you come at it from a cooperative standpoint, as I do in my collegiate classroom now and say, this is a moment where I need your full attention, clamshell your computers, I get 100% clamshelling. That happens from day one, every day I've done it. If you
0: have blurters, regulate your blurters. It's the same
1: response. I have students that are super eager and
0: super invested and they want to – they're hanging off every word. They're the puppy dogs in the classroom. They're wagging their tails. They're panting. Their ears are perked up. They want to be with you. And if you say, I need, I need you to, to calm down so that the rest of the class can participate, they're puppy dogs. They want, they want that. They want to comply with that. So regulate it. And if the lecture moves on before most of the students know a question has been asked, Stop you have control of the lecture don't move on so we can't say that oh the classroom experience is subpar so we should make sure that we provide this excellent online experience no i am the real monkey i make the classroom experience what it is that is my responsibility and if it's not the way it's supposed to be that is my fault Uh, but it was a, it was a, it was a great it was a great TED talk. <laughs> now we do other stuff.
1: So in our show planning process, we are navigating greater engagement with all of you, which is a wonderful problem to have. We had a comment from Steve Young who suggested a piece of reading to us, and we read it and considered it. So we're going to discuss one of your comments that was given on episode episode 11. This is a blog post, so it's an opinion piece from Terry Heck, Are Schools Prepared for Great Teachers, and it's considering the nature of disruption and especially the tension between scaling best practice and supporting best practice. This is a pretty short read that feels like
0: a pretty typical blog post in that it is infused with emotion and personal perspective uh, as you go through it. Uh, Now, that's something that I uh, resonated with and respond to positively, but that is not necessarily how everyone responds to such things. Yeah,
1: I, I'm a robot with the emotions of a rock, and I read it and was like, I'm waiting for my first citation. So I didn't quite respond to it as much, although he, he made some salient points that I think we need to highlight and respond to because it was not without value. The general thesis of the piece, to me, seemed to be that seeking this idea of a guaranteed and viable curriculum, which is a phrase that's popularized by Marzano, is directly at odds with supporting the agency and autonomy of individual teachers— Let's first discuss what a – what was it? Achievable – viable – Guaranteed and viable
0: curriculum. Guaranteed and viable curriculum. Uh, So what does that mean and what should it mean and and what does that mean to
1: me? Well – Because his general point – was that for it to be guaranteed, it means that it has to be out of the control of the individual reproducers of the curriculum, which necessarily means that none of them can be extraordinary because they must all be consistent with the guaranteed qualities of the curriculum, and that will necessarily tamp down great teaching. And I don't disagree with that line of thought. I believe the heart of the critique lies in
0: a misconception about what a guaranteed viable curriculum is. Can we, as a society, a board of education, a district administration, or classroom teachers, actually define what is achievable to our students before we meet them? And that is the attempt of developing standards, that's the attempt of developing a guaranteed viable curriculum. But the quintessential problem is that only the student can guarantee anything about what they learn. So when we attempt to define, this is the answer for 11th grade science without considering the individual students in our class, that is engaging in an act of hubris. I believe that setting goals uh, that are relatively robust and reasonable uh, is good because we have to have targets, but then we have to respond to the students in our classroom appropriately to teach them where they are at and what they are capable of. Defining it before we meet them can give us a starting place, but then we need to change ourselves in response to where they are and what they can do. To me, he wrote a phrase in the middle of this, serving two masters is draining. And that is, to me, the key component of this. Um, How can we both serve what I call over-standardization, because I'm not not trying to say that we shouldn't have standards. I think that we should. But uh, I believe it is a mistake for us to recognize the standards exist without students. So this seems to be a standardization versus differentiation issue. We need to differentiate for our students, and we need to make sure we hit
1: all of these standards in a school year. Those are at odds with each other. This dovetails with some comments that were made from uh, another colleague online, Joshua Farber, who is an ELA chair in Massachusetts. And he identified this pretty articulately on Reddit. And we'll give the link on our website for that. We identified there seems to be some conflation between standards-aligned teaching and standards-aligned assessment And the crux of his argument, which is articulate, but more than I can give you here in this moment, is that too often we're presented with the problem where we have standards that feel or that we judge to be unachievable with our current students, and so we have this choice between progressing through all of it – linearly because I can say these things before the deadline, but my students will fail to assess for competency, or I can be responsive to their needs, and then they will fail to assess for competency. And so the difficulty is acknowledging that individual teachers can identify when we have students who need their needs served in such a way that we are certain that they won't assess for competency on these standardized assessments. Or I can lecture really quickly so that I have said everything they need to know before the standardized assessment, so I can feel like the standards were met, but my students will still fail the standardized assessments. So the tension is not actually between standards and differentiation. The tension is between assessment and differentiation. We're dealing with two issues here. We are dealing with the issue
0: brought forth by Young, do schools support excellent teachers and I have further responses to say about that in regards to this discussion and then do inferior modeled assessments uh,
1: because that's, that's what you're discussing right that's what they're not discussing. inferior it, I think that they're the same issue is the argument that I want to make I think they're the same issue they're going to be assessed they don't meet some particular standard and we're right we're right they're not there this particular student doesn't read an 11th grade reading level true statement why why don't they read at 11th grade reading level is it because they've been below grade reading level for the last six years or is it because you didn't say enough things in your classroom so as a teacher, do we provide the autonomy for a great teacher to recognize that student needs to get from a third grade reading level to a sixth grade reading level? And that's three grades worth of growth. Great job. You did your job and more. Well done. Or do we say they're at a sixth grade reading level, which is not an 11th grade reading level, you have failed as a teacher? Our response to their appropriate assessment of that student developmental needs when the assessment is correct, they are not on grading level. Okay. So on our website
0: at com, I have responded to Mr. Young's initial comment regarding this article. And so I'm just going to hit a few points. If you'd like more details, you can go there uh, to read this response. But essentially, uh, teachers are susceptible to social pressures. So they, they we investing in ourselves and our work are still subject to to fears of rejection and sanctions and judgments of others. So if we have a system that implicitly expects this amount of content in the school year period, that's your responsibility, that imposes an expectation of compliance on the teacher that disregards that teacher's relationship with their students. And the stronger that implicit message is, then what you actually encourage in the school is more homogenization of practice. And that is a threat to our profession. Because breakthroughs, personal growth, inspiring events that teachers share with each other and encourage them to involve occur when teachers take risks. They try new things that may fail, but they gain insight and improve their practice because of those attempts. If a teacher is worried about making sure they cover all these standards at the cost of the exploration of new experiences, then you are promoting a culture that stunts the growth of the profession. Time is a currency, and if it is budgeted to a certain number of standards by a certain date, then you are not investing any of that time
1: on new components of one's practice. So here's what I did in response to this post. You made that response online. I went and found a piece of research from Marzano because I often find fault with some of what Marzano has posted in the past and that organization, but there's some research that came out this year talking about how their standards were generated, and what I really appreciated was the in-depth description of their eight-phase process for generating standards, and it was really responsive to how we authentically assess that in the classroom and to what our students need. particular, in the middle phases, they talk about finding individual milestones of progression and then explicitly identifying what are the steps in that learning progression that students can make that we can also measure. So Marzano is not arguing for blind description of standards or prescription of how we match or respond to those standards in the classroom. That's not what Marzano is saying. So if we follow what the actual research is saying, it's saying these are the targets. If we lay out enough of them, you identify which of those particular learning progression targets your students can hit right this second, and if the answer is second grade, get them to third grade. Yeah. Because it takes a year to go from second grade to third grade. So, if you get them from two to four, you did twice as much as what you needed to do in that school year. Good job. And the fact that they're 10th graders is totally irrelevant because they started with second grade and they had twice as much gain as they should have had in a year. Good work, you teacher. And if you're an administrator who says to them they're not hitting 11th grade, then you are totally ignorant of where they came into the classroom and you're stifling the development of your teachers and you are guaranteeing yourself that you will not have great teachers in your particular department.
0: This is better with all of you.
1: Okay, so our peer review this month is going to consider some comments from Russell Goodrick, who is the Director of Graduate and Adult Programming at Point Loma Nazarene University in San Diego, California, and he actually had a chance to give us a call and and give us some things to think about related to... Threshold concepts and their usage in higher education. There's a there's a attitude within higher education of I know my discipline, so I know how to instruct it best. That's kind of the,
0: the way that higher education works. Um, and so to to add in an educational theory um, of how to deploy knowledge and how to to effectively um, convey knowledge uh, kind of robs the faculty of that. Um, of that man superiority and that's a little rough but um, but it it, it strips them of their ability to be the one who uh, is kind of all knowledgeable in their subjects in their field because there's someone else telling them or some other theory instructing them on how they they should do their job and how they should convey and build curriculum
1: we talked last month with Dr. Hallman about the necessity of content expertise if I'm going to be an effective curriculum specialist. Yeah. So it is false. And that's consistent with my anecdotal experience with companies who provide – we are an online learning company, so come to us and we'll build your course. Those experiences have been consistently bad. So – how do you navigate this space of faculty or content experts? And I don't expect that's going to change anytime soon. Whether it should or shouldn't, it's not going to change. So if you tagged me in for a Biology 400 course so that I could help them build a an online learning space that's responsive to the education research, I think that partnership could be really productive. I think that we could make a, a course that's a lot better than leaving them to build it by themselves. However, all of the realities of that partnership, so me having the final veto and making them do things that's against their um, professional... Judgment, or me trying to support somebody who wants to do things that are intuitively satisfying but inconsistent with education research. Like, all of the things that are the reality of that implementation feel terrible, but conceptually, it feels like it'd be, it could be really productive. And so I wasn't sure how to resolve all of that. I wanted to talk about it at some point in the future because it didn't ever really come up during the primary citation. So it's, uh, I mean, the major theme is resolving
0: the general lack of pedagogical awareness and technique at the post-secondary level. How do we resolve that? Here are some propositions. What are the strengths and weaknesses of Especially
1: those? with the general push towards more online learning spaces because they're more efficient from a resource standpoint.
0: Of course that makes us yeah, I mean a
1: resource standpoint because yeah there are plenty of struggles to be had with an instructor in a classroom who isn't ed- trained in education they're super effective if you believe into the linear content delivery system well, and also just the, the linear nature of time. So especially as you get to the very high levels of expertise, I can be an expert in my field or I can be an education expert. But at some point, if I'm working on my doctorate, I didn't have time to do both. Right. Like We don't because it doesn't exist. It's not real.
0: Right. We don't live to 160.
1: Yeah. So, so that would be great.
0: Wouldn't that be great if
1: we lived to 160? So, does it, so the answer is, is – balanced collaboration that's not hard to decide but from a policy standpoint that is literally impossible
0: i reject that claim but accept that it's very difficult
1: which is so fun literally impossible yeah
0: yeah i don't accept that
1: because humans are social creatures and so there will be they one of them will seek dominance over the other categorically there might be individual instances where they can share power but the majority one will seek dominance over the other Uh, you would have to show me those citations I understand okay also um, it's
0: irrelevant whether it's just really hard or impossible I mean, for the purposes of
1: unrealizable.
0: Yeah, for the purposes of implementation at the sec, at the post secondary level. I mean, we can quibble, quibble philosophically about where the line of human interaction possibilities are, but way before we get to that line, we have so many other yeah. problems. Impossible
1: is way past can't. Yes, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah. I didn't like any of that.
0: Oh, was a mirror. Yep. I liked it. Uh, I liked it. It makes me think of... I don't know. I don't know. It makes me think of an image in my head when I'm looking at something and I don't know what I'm looking at. Like the... Uh, you know when you, like, uh, crack a walnut and there's that, like... Film around the nut—that's what it makes me feel like. It makes it reminds me of that. It is a dark, aromatic smell. It is it is cool when it starts and finishes warm. It has a hint of sweetness, but is is primarily a bitter a bitter presence, which I enjoy. It's not hoppy at all. At all. I don't, I don't, not even a hint. It's pretty damn good. I like it a lot.
1: It is good. It's a, your imagery is so rich. And my answer is, it's a doorway to a dark room in which I want to sit. (laughs) So it's like, come on in. And I'm like, I will. Thanks for listening. We got a great website. Join us on 2Pi PLC or. We're posting on Reddit. We're doing, I don't know, Twitter. We got other internet nonsense. Or subscribe and listen in next month. We appreciate you listening. Give us a comment. Discuss research. And struggle well.